Welcome to Product Success Management Issues, the podcast and video series that explores in depth with experienced product managers and product marketing managers the key issues that affect product success. Sponsored by Wiley and my company, Spice Catalyst, I am Dave Frayden, your host and the author of Foundations in the Successful Management of Products series of books and courses published by Wiley. Be sure to connect with me on LinkedIn. Be sure to connect with my guest also. Welcome, Phil Roybal, the Vice President of Marketing of Myela Learning. I think I mispronounced that. Myela uh, Learning. Yeah. Myela Learning. Uh, the, the reason that we have the month of May, you were telling me earlier. That's right. Maya, Maya was the Roman goddess of growth, and she gives the month of May its name. And uh, we named our software after her in the hope that we can help kids grow into the leaders we need them to be. Great. Tell us a little bit about that. It's a very interesting uh, market niche that you're going after. Well, in some states, especially California, kids get very little counseling. And what our system tries to do is build profiles for them, recommend careers that they might never have thought of, but would be great fits for them, and then help them find colleges where they could prepare for those careers and build the stories, the portfolios that get them in, and then give counselors the tools to guide the process. And where are you in in the business? Are you out in the marketplace now? We are indeed. We run the state of California contract. If you go to California Colleges EDU, at the bottom it says Powered by Maya Learning. Oh, that's great. We're and, in 35 countries and we have about a million users. So. Oh, great. Uh, and you and I go way back to the uh, early 1980s. Uh, oh, when, Lord. <laughs> when I was a uh, product marketing manager at Apple. And uh, you, um, I, you, you just told me, is the, was the first uh, manager of product marketing for the company. That's right, yes. I was the 35th guy at the company, and uh, I, I handled tech support and product marketing for the, the first products we had, the Apple II, the disc, you know, all the follow-on products. And what, uh, how, did, how was product marketing at that time organized at Apple? Organized? Yes. <laughs> it was organized, I remember. Well, Mike Markle was kind of doing it among doing a whole bunch of other things. Better and, introduce uh, Mike. He was uh, he, he was one of the early presidents, one of the early founders, uh, initial financier of the company. That's right. Yes, it was his, uh, I believe, $91,000 investment that made the, uh, the corporation go. Uh, when he joined Waz and Jobs to incorporate the partnership, then uh, he invested his money on the proviso that he could run marketing because it was clear that uh, the other two weren't marketing guys. And he had come over from Intel as a product manager, correct? Well, he had retired from Intel. Right. He'd made his money. Well, as left. a marketing manager, that's what he was. That's right. Yeah. And he'd made his fortune there, and then he'd left. And when Watson Jobs went looking for money, they ran into a guy named Don Valentine, a venture capitalist, who went over to see them in the garage but figured this wasn't quite right for him, but, but he knew a guy that it would be perfect for. So he called Mike, and Mike went over to the garage and checked it out and decided that, uh, yeah, he'd be interested, get back in the game. And he was a young man still at the time. So he'd invest his money if he could have a major hand in shaping the corporation. I, I, the story I heard is that the PR guru, uh, Mike uh, Regis McKenna, was the one that introduced Markula to Steve and Steve. 
That might well be, yeah. Yeah, he might have he might have been the the contact that Valentine said, uh, you know, not for me. <laughs> so but, des- describe but how he worked with Mike at Intel, I believe. Ah, okay. Describe how how product marketing got organized uh, as you came in. Well, when I came in, we were just introducing the Disc Two, and the Apple II had been out for a few months. We had announced it in the previous May, I think, at the first West Coast Computer Fair. 1978, right? It was announced in 77. 77. So I joined in January of 78. And uh, we were just introducing the the disc and the printer driver cart. In fact, I remember my first day, uh, Mike Scott, who was president at the time, put his arm around my shoulder and he said, let me show you something. And he took me into a back room. There are all these printer cards like laying out there on the table. And he says, you see all these printer cards? And I said, yeah. He says, they're not shipping. And he looked at me. I said, why aren't they shipping? He said, well, we have no manual. And he looked at me. He said, would you like me to take one home and write a manual? Said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike wrote the manual or you? I wrote the you, Oh, Okay. And the printer card was the card that drove the printers off of the Apple II. That's right, yes, because there wasn't a built-in interface for a printer in an Apple II. Uh, The Apple II had slots, and almost every external thing connected through a card that did all the the electronic logic. So then it was a matter of starting to answer questions, that is, be tech support, and try to build plans for the product, the pricing, and the next show. So Gene Carter was already there. He'd come in a few months earlier to be head of sales. And so we were trying to work out what dealer pricing should be, what the dealers needed in order to merchandise properly. They needed some demos. I mean, back then the answer to the question, what do you do with a personal computer was you program it because it wasn't anything else. So we tried to to come up with some demos that would at least spark their fancy and get them to the point where they could inspire their customers to be enthusiastic. Uh, I don't know if that's answered your question. Yeah, it did. So what you just described is some of the functions that product marketing performed in the early days of a startup, a hardware software startup. Right. And the story I heard is that uh, the disk operating system, which enabled the floppy disk drive, the disk two, was written uh-huh. by written by Steve Wozniak in about three weeks, and that he was motivated to do that because he you guys were going to take it and show it at Comdex, or was it the West Coast Computer Show? No, I think it was Comdex because it was early in the year. The West Coast Computer Fair was in June, I think, mm-hmm. May or June, something like that. So this was earlier, and yeah, the the or uh, Gene Carter and Mike Markle had determined they wanted to show it at that show. And the show was in January, as I recall. So it had to work, <laughs> or at least look like it worked. And then, then Wozniak wrote this in about three weeks because he wanted to go to Las Vegas. He had never been there before. That's right, yes. Yep. Uh, and did the hardware design. And later, uh, you know, I had uh, people like uh, uh, Osborne tell me that the design couldn't possibly work because it didn't have enough chips. <laughs> well, that's what that was one of Wozniak's geniuses is to be able to Absolutely. very efficiently put the traces down on the board and reduce the number of chips and so forth. And he was a hardware poet. He really was. Yeah. And well, refresh the a lot of our viewers and and listeners uh, don't know who Osborne was. What what did he do? 
Adam Osborne. So he was a writer at uh, <clears throat> it was a company that did books on hardware and software. I don't remember the name of it. But he had gotten the idea for a portable computer, although portable is a charitable term for a 40-pound device. And he'd come up with a design, uh, with the help of some engineers, for this, maybe you call it a luggable computer. And had built this thing and started selling it. And he came to me because he, he was trying to hire me. So he made me a, a pitch on why I should come, explaining that Apple was doomed and that the, the software couldn't possibly work and the hardware couldn't possibly work. <laughs> and then he invented the uh, uh, thinking about marketing today, which is don't introduce a product too soon. Otherwise, you'll cause people to stop by your existing product and make you go out of business. I was there in the room as he as he did that. I remember <laughs> he, uh, Adam was uh, Adam was an excitable guy, and uh, maybe a little bit like Brett Kavanaugh. So he was under attack because his product was heavy. It wasn't super reliable. It didn't have a lot of characters on the screen. There were a lot of comments people were making at uh, I think it was a West Coast Computer Fair. It was a session. And you can see he was getting a little hot under the collar because he knew that the next design would fix all of these things, right? And so finally, he, he couldn't contain himself anymore. Ah, that, so that led to the introduction. And Well, he basically said that, you know, this, this next thing that we're going to have in another month or two, and you could feel a, a hush descend over the room <laughs> as his company died. <laughs> what, didn't it take about a year before it died? Well, the cash flow dried up because who's right. going to buy this product if the next one's so close right. and so much better. Yeah, we refer to that as the uh, end of life called the uh, uh, the Osborne effect. The Osborne effect, absolutely. And uh, I, I, one of the things I do is I teach product management and product marketing at Cisco, and I mention this to the younger youngins there, and they say, well, this is such an old example. Obviously, it's obsolete. I said, no, it isn't. It's still pertinent today. <laughs> you know, as Churchill said, "If you, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, and so, so that's fascinating. The, and then how many more product managers or product marketing managers came in to work, uh, for you? Oh, let's see. I'm trying to remember. It seems to me at one point I had a group of about 35 people, but they were also writers because I was writing the collateral. So I had a, a chief writer, Monty Lorenzette, who managed the, oh, yeah. uh, the tech writing group. And then we had several writers under him. And then I had a group that was tech support that was answering questions on the phone. And uh, that was under Jim Hoyt. And then, uh, so I don't remember exactly how I had it divided up, but it, it seems like I had about 35 people overall. And why was it called product marketing and not product management? Well, because we were writing the marketing materials. Uh, we were go going out and talking to customers and talking to dealers. Doing demos. Doing demos, you bet. Yep. In fact, at one point, I remember my writers, they, they didn't seem to be writing what the dealers really needed. And so thinking about this, I thought, suppose I had them go where the action is. <laughs> so one day at a staff meeting, I said, you know, in the next six months, I want each of you to go spend three days working at a dealership. I'll find the dealers for you. And I knew the dealers would be receptive because I talked to some. And 
they bitched and moaned. They said, hey, we're really? writers, we're not sales guys, and on and on and on. And I said, well, that's fine, but, but if you want a good review, uh, what you're going to do is you're going to go work in a dealership for, for three days. So over the next couple of months, they all did. And without exception, they came back so high because they actually saw where what they were doing made a difference. And they got to hear the customer's words and the, the quality of the writing improved just dramatically. That's great. So, so they then knew exactly who their audience was. Yeah, and they knew what words worked. Yeah. I mean, I've always felt one of the great advantages of a trade show is you can pitch something, and if somebody's eyes glaze over, then you say it a different way to the next guy. And you keep doing that <laughs> until you find what works. Yeah. So that's what they got to do. In my case, I was sent to Comdex to introduce the profile, our first uh, first hard disk drive on a PC. First hard disk drive. I and you remember it. It was uh, really cheap. It was only about $3,500 or $3,600. And it was really, really big. It was five megabytes. Five megabytes. Yeah. But, and I wonder what I would ever do with so much storage. Precisely. That's what everyone said. And I was the only person that Apple sent there amongst the 23 people at Comdex. And they made me give a half-hour presentation every half hour for five days straight on why oh people God. could use five megabytes worth of space. <laughs> I bet you got tired of that. Oh, yeah. And it was on a concrete floor. That was before you guys put any padding in uh, under yes. the carpet. And I couldn't stay. I couldn't even stand to take a shower on the fourth day. <laughs> um, so I should have gotten hazardous pay for that. So the interesting thing is how this field of product marketing has developed. Uh, from the research I've done for my books, I found that... Uh, Product marketing evolved out of brand management from Procter & Gamble uh, to okay. HP. And I found in my research that, uh, uh, that people at Apple hired product managers or product marketing managers from HP because we were trained. Uh, I came from HP. Is, is that your case uh, in, the, in terms of the people you hired? Uh, yeah, for the most part, they, they had had some marketing experience. They didn't necessarily come from big companies. I mean, I hired people from, from a lot of places. But what I looked for was an enthusiasm for the kind of thing we were doing and the ability to convey it. Because I knew if I could get somebody excited, everything else would take care of itself. Gotcha. So key communication skills, writing, presentation, verbal, that type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we gave an Apple II to every employee in the beginning, because we wanted them to be excited about the product. Yeah, I found that very impressive. Uh, by the time I got there in 82, I came in and uh, not only did I have an office, but uh, which was unusual, and a desk, which was even more unusual, uh, but there was an unopened Apple III on my desk. And, there you go. and uh, I think Steve and you wanted us to go through the out-of-box experience, uh -huh. uh, which consists or exists to this day. Uh, when I got my iPhone uh, XS last week or two weeks ago, First thing I did was start start taking pictures of it with my iPhone uh, X as I opened up this jewel uh, of a presentation. Apple knows how to package, doesn't you it? You betcha. A great out-of-box experience. The, uh, the interesting thing is then in the late 1990s, as the field of product management and product marketing evolved, by the way, I prefer to call it product success management and product success marketing. Because that explains what it does, because I, I have a little memo that I've put up on uh, the SpiceCatalyst.com website where you send a memo to your boss that says, uh, Dear boss, I, I need to change my title from product manager 
Because when I go to a party and there's a beautiful lady there and I start talking to her and they ask me, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a product manager. And she says, what's that? And I say, well, I try to figure out what the customer wants to do. Then I, uh, I uh, put together a value proposition and do market research and competitive research and generate the uh, product positioning, which helps drive the messaging. And then I, I, I identify the markets and the target markets and the total available market and then put together the pricing strategy and the budget and so forth and, I, and this is bef- this is the product management side not counting the product marketing side which is where where you specialized in and I said usually before I get to about 10 seconds of that she turns and walks away so I, I ask in the memo boss can I please change my title to product success manager so that I can get married and have you know the prerequisite 2.3 kids and besides uh, you can change your title to vice president of product success and I'll invite you to the wedding there we go. I like that. It's selling the benefit. <laughs> so later in, in the 90s, uh, a lot of people, because I, I was an engineer, but I was not working as an engineer at, at HP. I was in marketing and call yeah. a product marketing manager. And Apple hired me as a product marketing manager. Uh, there was a company down in Arizona called Pragmatic figured out that none of us in engineering school learned anything about marketing. So they started teaching product marketing. And then uh, I think a little bit later, they invented this notion of inbound and outbound, that the product marketing people were outbound, the product uh, product management people were uh, uh, inbound. They were trying to figure out what it is that the customer wants to do. Yeah. And uh, I also found in my research, it appears, and you may have some visibility in this, that after Steve uh, left Apple, uh, Steve Jobs, that is, and after uh, Next failed, uh, in the late 1980s, uh, he was able to sit down with Dave Packard of uh, Hewlett Packard. Oh, and, how nice. And he coached him. He says, uh, Steve, it's great that you want to build these insanely great products, uh, but you got to build an insanely great company. And that's precisely what he did when he came back to Apple. Yes. Do you, do you have any more visibility on that? Well, I left in 1990. Uh, the company had been run by a succession of guys who had proved they didn't know how to run it. And it was, in my view, in a death spiral and no fun to work at anymore. Mm. So I left on my 12th anniversary and decided I I was done. I was going to retire. And then I watched it continue to sink, sold my stock. (laughs) (laughs) So did I. (laughs) And then when Steve came back in 96, I sent him an email. I said, thank goodness you're coming back. I think you're the only one who can save this company. And he sent me a nice little thank you. But what I saw was that the, the products had proliferated with no differentiation. You know, there were 100 products, and they all seemed kind of the same. And they were all bland. There was no sex there. And so Apple was becoming just another company that made beige boxes. No design thinking. Yeah, Exactly. And the, the stuff didn't play together any better than anybody else's. There wasn't any there there. And, and now you know that even if the products individually aren't the most spectacular, the ecosystem that ties everything together so that you copy something on your desktop clipboard and it's there on your phone to paste, that's pretty slick. Yep. It saves a lot of time. Yep. And that's by understanding what people are actually doing. 
And uh, one of the things that, that I teach is you, you need to go out as a product manager and figure out what is it that people do? Why do they do it? When do they do it? How do they do it? Where do they do it? And so forth. The basic questions that a journalist would ask for, yeah. for, for any article. And uh, Steve is famous for have saying, um, you can't ask people what they want. And there's a story out there that says if Henry Ford went out and asked people if they wanted a car, they would say, no, I want a faster horse. Sure. So back to your story of the writers you sent to the dealers to observe what was going on at the dealership, that was doing essentially the same kind of thing. Yeah, and listening to the words people use. Once they've made a decision, how do they describe it to their friends? Those are the words we wanted. Right. And that's always up to a lot of misinterpretation because of the nature of, of, the, of the English language. So, yeah. yeah, seeing that firsthand and experiencing that firsthand is, is very critical. I wanted to chat a little bit with you about Apple values. Uh, where okay. did they come from? What is, what is your recollection of how they developed at Apple? Well, when I joined, the company was in an explosive growth phase. So I was the 35th guy in, at the beginning of 78. As I recall, by the end of 78, we had about 110 or something like that people. So we tripled in size that first year. And it seems to me around 110, we, we, we got badges, which we figured was the beginning of the end now. <laughs> <laughs> now, now there's structure. <laughs> now there's structure. Yeah. And it was because some stuff had disappeared. And so we figured, well, somebody had, you know, walked in off the street and taken some something. No, it was Wozniak. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell that story in a minute. Go ahead. But because the company was expanding so fast, we couldn't depend upon the way we used to transfer values was I hired my friend or a guy I knew, and we had the same values. That's why we were friends. So we had to codify it somehow, and we based it on the HP way. Hmm. Because lots of us had come out of HP. I, I started my career as an engineer at HP, so I, I was kind of steeped in that. And it, uh, we had a lot of respect for HP. So we started with that, and we put together a committee in the finest corporate uh, way. So I remember Trip Hawkins and I were on the committee, and there were about 10 people. I don't remember who else was on it. And Trip but Hawkins got, was the second product manager or product marketing manager for the Apple III after Steve Jobs. Uh, well, Jobs wasn't ever the manager for the Apple III, was he? That's my understanding, is he introduced that in October of... Uh, 1980. Anyway. Okay, well, I remember Barry Yarconi was... Uh, yeah, later, he was later on. Yeah, I thought he was the, the marketing guy for that, but, but my recollection of that is hazy. Uh, <clears throat> so back to anyway, the values. We had, this, we had this group that met once a week for about a year, as I recall, trying to come up with something that was succinct and that codified how we felt about the company, how, how we wanted the company to grow and be so that we didn't lose track of it. And I remember Markola talking about how we had a choice to make in the corporation because the market was expanding rapidly. So we could do what was comfortable for Apple and have a steadily declining market share, but a good company and a good product. Or we could risk the wheels falling off the wagon by trying to grow at the market rate or higher, knowing that we may wind up with something we didn't want. We ultimately chose to do the latter, you know, go for it, and so the Apple values were our way of trying to lay a foundation so that when we went for it, the people we went for it with would be like us, and who, or at least feel the same way. Who else was, do you recall that was on that committee? 
Oh boy. Was uh, Mike Connor on there? Maxine, Maxine Graham? I just don't remember, Dave. How about Ann Bowers? No, this was before Ann. Oh, okay. She didn't come in until later. Because so. she had she came in as VP of HR, and she had been the VP of HR at Intel previously, correct? Right. And married to Bob Noyce. That's right, yes. Yep. Yeah, so she came in, I think at that time, well, let's see. I remember she took over employee training from me, and so we had a meeting about that. And I don't remember exactly when. It must have been around 81 she came in. Ah, uh, okay. Could that be? Because I was learning to fly at the time, and I, she and she and Bob and I flew out of the same airport, the, the same area. So, where where were you learning to fly? At uh, San Jose Airport. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I teach for the uh, Stanford Flying Club. Oh, do you? Yep. The well, uh, Mark Markle had set up a, an FBO at oh, yeah. San Jose State or at San Jose Airport, and we were all sitting around at uh, a New Year's Eve party talking about our goals for the next year. And I thought it would be fun to learn to fly. And he said, well, you know, I just hired a chief pilot to run my FBO and he doesn't have much to do, so he can teach you. <laughs> because he hadn't got the jet leasing business going yet. Well, he was just getting it going. Yeah. But, you know, still his his pilot stand didn't have a lot to do. So he taught me to fly. And then I flew Mike's uh, little plane. He had a Piper Arrow. So that's, uh, what I flew. that's funny. Yeah. So the, uh, I don't know if, you and I ever had a chance to talk because by the time I took over the uh, the Apple III product line as the uh, uh, group product manager, I think you were on your way to Paris to uh, do the Mac introduction there. Exactly. I lived in Paris in 83. So. Yeah. And then, and I'm trying to remember, must have been about May or June of 83, uh, the executive committee, Steve Jobs and Mike Markla and others went off to uh, Pajara Dunes and they canceled the Apple III product line. And I didn't know anything about it, nor did my code division managers that I reported up to through Ida Cole, who was the marketing manager. She later went on to become the international uh, vice president of uh, Microsoft. Uh-huh. And uh, there, I had a product manager working for me by the name of Bob Cummings that had moved into product management for manufacturing, which was an interesting career transition. And, of course, uh, Del Yoakum, who was head of manufacturing, sent out to Telegram to all of our suppliers and said, uh, we're not going to buy any more parts for the Apple III. And so they all called Cummings, said, what's going on? And he called me and said, what's going on? And I pulled Paul Daly, one of the division managers, out of a meeting. We had an off-site meeting we were in at the time at Palo Alto and asked him what's going on. He said, I don't know what's going on. So... Uh-huh. Um, uh, I just I had a little office in the uh, Mariani, not the Mariani, in the uh, the Triangle Building, which is along Lawrence Expressway. Oh yeah, I know. At two eighty, and it was uh, it was about uh, three feet wide, and it went down about five feet, then had a dog leg to the left. So I brought my putter in, and I just, that's all I could do is, you know, practice my putting day after day. And finally, one day, I was walking out of the Mariani Building, which is across the street from the old, uh, what's now the old new corporate headquarters for Apple. And Ida Cole ran out and grabbed me and said that uh, John wants to talk to you. And I said, who's that John who? And she said, John Scully. And I had met John Scully, the president, a couple, three times before. 
And I went into this meeting, and he was sitting at the head of this little table uh, in this little conference room next to his office. And he was holding a Super VisiCalc spreadsheet, which was developed on an Apple III. Yeah. And uh, to my left was Joe Graziano, who was the CFO at the time. Across from me was Ida Cole, who I mentioned. And to her right was Del Yoakum, uh, who was VP of Manufacturing. Yeah. And uh, Yoakum says, uh, you got to get your Apple III out of my manufacturing facilities because we're making 40,000 Apple IIs a month. And uh, your uh, Apple III, which is only about 1,000 a month, are getting in the way. You got to get it out of here. And uh, Scully looks at his spreadsheet and he says, Dave, we've got about uh, $20 million worth of piece parts spread between Dallas and Singapore, our manufacturing facilities. What should we do about it? And I said, what do you mean we, pale face? And uh, <laughs> he didn't laugh. Uh, you did because you, you remember the joke. And yeah. frequently when I tell that now, uh, many of my students are of uh, uh, Indians or Asian uh, uh, descent. And they, they never saw the Lone Ranger back in the 50s or watched the movies or anything like that. So I explained to them that Tonto and the Lone Ranger were going through the desert. And uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto were surrounded by 10,000 yelling, screaming Indians. And at this point, I have to explain to the Indian Indians that we're talking about American Indians. Yes. And um, uh, Lone Ranger turns to Tonto and says, what do you mean? Uh, uh, what are we going to do, Tonto? Here we are surrounded by 10,000 yelling, screaming Indians, and all they want to do is scalp us. And Tonto, who is an American Indian, says, what do you mean we, pale face? <laughs> yes. And Scully didn't laugh. And he, says, he kind of says, why are you telling me this story? I said, well... When I took on the job as the DIS2 product manager and the profile product manager, the first thing I did, because I'd learned this at HP, is I took a job at the local Apple computer store in Fremont, uh, which was one of the early Apple uh, computer stores, and I worked there nights for two or three weeks because I wanted to figure out what was happening at the other end of the spectrum, uh -huh. doing the same kind of thing. I hadn't met you yet uh, with, with the writers, and uh, I said... And I, then I, I described to him the eight levels of corporate bureaucracy I had to go through in order to sell Apple Threes. And I said, it's like pushing a wet noodle. So uh, Scully said to me, what should we do about it? And then because of my aerospace experience, I told him about uh, Lockheed's uh, Skunk Works and Kelly Johnson developing aircraft in 18 months versus seven years. Yeah. Uh, at that time, the soul of a new machine and what IBM was doing by moving their PC uh, development as far away from corporate headquarters in New York, but stay in the same time zone. So that's why... Yeah, the, and the Boca Raton. Right, Boca Raton. So he said, make me a proposal. Uh, and I and Maxine Graham and about 80 people contributed to an 80-page business plan. And I had a core group of 7 to 12 people that wrote it up. And I presented it to the executive committee on... Um, July 15th, 1983, which in my mind will live in infamy. And uh, uh, the turning point, going back to the Apple values we were talking about, is Maxine, who I think was on your Apple values committee. She says, in addition to showing the P&L and the balance sheet consequences of alternative decisions with regard to this product line, we should also compare and contrast Apple values to these five options or decisions we can make. And at that point, after I'd walked through that overhead transparency, or we called them foils back then, back then, or right. today it's PowerPoint projected on a television set, um, 
uh, Mike, uh, Mark, um, Floyd Kwame, who was a VP of marketing and sales at the time, said, Dave, if a dealer calls you and we continue the product line, what would you say? And if we cancel the product line right now, what would we say? I said, uh, Floyd, you know my belief in allowing the market to make the decisions because we're usually not smart enough to know what the market is going to do. Uh, then I would tell the dealer, so long as you continue to sell the products, we'll continue to support it, develop it, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But if you tell uh, the dealers uh, or announce that we're going to cancel the product line right now, and that is contrary to Apple values, things like good management, empathy for the customers, and so forth. If you guys decide that, I looked at everybody in the room, and Ann Bowers was in the back of the room. I said, if you guys do that, I would give the dealer your phone number. <laughs> and of course, they all immediately knew making that kind of decision when we had, and we didn't understand it at the time, that the product line was Apple's cap, uh, cash cow because the Boston Consulting Group hadn't invented that term for at least, what, another five years. And uh, so then they asked me to take over the product line, and they wouldn't appoint me as general manager, so they gave me the title of business unit manager, or BUM for short. The BUM. (laughs) Go talk to that BUM. (laughs) And then it was interesting, along these same lines, going back to your experience, uh, and you're talking about Gene Carter, who was VP of, of sales, Right. I saw him at a uh, Apple reunion back in 2014, and he was explaining that he had to have one sales force to sell the Apple II into computer stores, which were predominantly selling chips and stuff and boards for people to build their own computers. Is, is that correct? Uh, yeah, in the beginning. I mean, even the, the Apple II had space on the board so that you could add your own wire-wrapped chips because, of course, most computer owners would add their own circuitry. (laughs) (laughs) And then the Apple III came along, and uh, it was more of an office computer, a business computer, what for markets I call small office, home office, small and medium business today. Big Mm -hmm. spreadsheets, real word processing, uh, big uh, 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 business accounting, and so forth. So Gene had to organize a whole new set of salespeople. The reps that he was using from the semiconductor business selling to computer stores had to learn how to sell into uh, the the SMB and the the Soho offices. And then the Lisa came along, and we really really weren't sure what that was positioned for to to some extent. (laughs) And then the Mac came along, which was the computer for all of us. And uh, he said that uh, he had to put together... Roughly four complete new sales organizations in about six years. Yeah, that's true. And, and we had to, we got Rob Campbell to manage the accounting software, and we all had to learn what that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's accounting? <laughs> yeah, but, but back then, I mean, really, the, there wasn't a lot you could do with a computer. And then, uh, you know, Frankston and Bricklin came out with BizCalc, and so we got the first spreadsheet. So now we had an answer for the Apple II. And then we had the Apple III, and Mitch Kapoor came up with uh, his first version of what became uh, uh, Lotus. What on the Lotus. Lotus Notes, yeah. Yeah, Lotus One, Two, Three. Uh, what, yeah, that's right. Which he showed to Steve Jobs, who, in his inimitable way, said, "This is shit." Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Causing Mitch to say, "Well, if you think so, I'll go do it for the PC." <laughs> and he did, and, and and he did, and it dominated like an eighty-seven, eighty-eight had like 90 percent market share. Yeah. Until IBM acquired them, and until and this is an interesting lesson in terms of bundling. 
where Microsoft then bundled or developed Excel and then bundled it with Word and bundled it with a, a database. And, uh, and then they acquired uh, uh, PowerPoint uh, and put it all together, uh, which post-seeded uh, what we did, which, was, which we called Three Easy Pieces. Three Easy Pieces, that's right, yes. Which later became Apple Works for the Apple II. And then generated that amazing, uh, uh, what do they call that, uh, uh, oxymoron, uh, Microsoft Works. <laughs> Which it sometimes does. <laughs> sometimes it does, yeah. <laughs> That's why I say, and, and you're, you're a marketing guy and a positioning guy, I, I always think that the, uh, the tagline for a company should reflect the brand, the promise yeah. of the company. And Microsoft should change its tagline to helping more people feel more stupid than any other company in the world. <laughs> Which is, of course, something that Apple tries very much not to do, is to try yeah. to have that total customer experience. Which, and you correct me if I'm wrong, goes right back to the early days when, when you got it all starting. Absolutely. In fact, I, I have a, a brief funny story. The, when I joined, I felt very much a company needs a human face. So the first third of a million Apple IIs that went out went out with a little letter from me that said, hey, we think this is a great computer. If for any reason you don't, or if you have a problem, let us know. So one day the phone rings on my desk. I pick it up, you know, Apple computer, Phil Royball. And there's just a kind of a <clears throat> silence at the other end. I say, Hello? And the guy says, uh, you're real. <laughs> I, I said, yeah, what did you expect? And he said, well, I thought you'd be like Betty Crocker or something. <laughs> well, that, the most personal computer. Yeah. Which, exactly. which was the tagline. Mm -hmm. it, it was the personal computer. And then uh, uh, IBM came out with one. So you added the most personal computer. The most personal. We're more personal than they are. Now, were you involved in the ad that you ran uh, in, what was it, the Wall Street Journal of the New York Times that said, welcome IBM seriously to the marketplace? No, I wasn't. I, I think I still have a, no, I think I gave that to Stanford University. But I, I do remember that. And I used to kind of spoof it. Uh, I gave a, a talk on, on Apple, the corporation, to all new employees for several years. And so I, I'd spoof that, you know, here we were, this tiny little company saying, welcome, IBM, seriously, looking up at this giant. <laughs> well, you, you knew Fred Hoare, uh, who was the oh, VP. Oh, yeah, I worked VP. for Fred for a Fred. while. And Fred was one of the most incredible uh, masters of ceremony I've ever seen. And uh, he would get up and say, hi, my name is Fred Hoare. That's... Um, F-R-E-D. F-R-E-D. When his last name was actually H-O-A-R. Yes. And he said that that ad, uh, some friends of his on Wall Street, because he also handled, I think, investor relations. Yeah. Uh, he said my, some of his friends on Wall Street said that's like uh, uh, agreeing to play catch with a javelin and electing to receive. <laughs> but he knew that the fact that IBM got into the marketplace legitimatized the fact that there was a market. Absolutely. For did. personal computers. Another little story to get your perspective on is that this didn't occur to me until 2014 at that uh, Apple reunion. And I started writing, uh, building and selling great products. I began to realize that we were selling Apple threes for about seven or $8,000. That was the CPU and the hard drive and the, and the uh, monitor. Yeah. monitor. 
um, and a dis- another floppy disk drive and accounting software and a spreadsheet and a word processor yeah. and so forth, Cork and so forth. And we were getting, if I recall correctly, about a 40% margin on that. Whereas the Apple II was an Apple II with two disk drives, uh, almost no software, and it was selling for 1995. That was the, the low-cost bundle uh-huh. and a margin of about 20%. So I ran the numbers, and it turned out that from a financial standpoint, we were not 140th of the company that Dell was thinking it was in terms of his metric of success. Yeah. We were actually 1/6th of the company, and that the profits of the company was sufficient to employ somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 to 1,500 Apple employees. Wow. And, and after I shut the product line down, because I couldn't get any more attention from the Apple II group, uh, and Maxine came to me and said, we got this Apple II Forever event. They'll only give us one demo station out of 24, and the dealers will go crazy. They'll know, uh, you know say, well, are you going to support thing, this thing or not? Because we're not going to sell it if, if the company's not going to support it. So at that point, swimming up river or pushing a wet noodle was no longer uh, fun. And we had sold 23,000 of the 25,000 that we had in inventory after 11 months with my little independent team. And uh, so I said, okay, game over, we're going to shut the thing down. And then all those Apple employees lost their jobs about six months later. That in reality, the Apple III was a cash cow. It was mature. It worked. The 75,000 people that bought it loved it. It was the third most popular personal computer in the world at the time after the Apple II and after the PDP-11. Uh, yeah. The IBM was still coming on quite strong. And uh, we the, the point is, is that the company picked the wrong metric for success. And we continue to see that with other companies out there. They're picking different metrics for success, which have some unintended consequences. Yeah, I liked my Apple III. They, people loved it. I, I swear there was cocaine or something in the keyboard that people... <laughs> well, there was something because that sucker weighed 22 pounds. So. Yes. <laughs> now, did you know Helmut Essinger? Yeah, well, that name is so familiar. Frog was Designs. He... The Snow White look. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he was the designer at... Uh, Frog. Which At Frog Design, that's right. Right. It came up with the 2C, was that right? Yeah, and the uh, Apple III monitor. Uh, okay. And Unidisc and Dual Disc. Yeah. And I think some of the later printers, and it evolved into the Macintosh, the original Macintosh. Oh, okay. And he wrote a book a few years ago, uh, less than five years ago, called Keep It Simple. And he has yeah. all of his design drawings in there and shows the uh, Snow White design language. And mm. uh, uh, John Scully fired him because Scully wanted to copy what IBM was doing. And you probably recall the design, and you talked about this earlier, of the Macintosh started looking exactly like the uh, uh, IBM PC. Yeah. A rectangular sheet metal. Right, yeah. And no that's, pizzazz. No pizzazz. As if it was the look of the box that contributed to the success of the PC, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that had well, nothing to do with it. Well, I, I suspect... Uh, we knew that if we did injection molding, it was really expensive, and it would take six weeks to do a new mold, and if we screwed it up, the product would be delayed, whereas IBM knew if they just bent sheet metal, they can do that in a few days, and that's probably why the IBM PC was just in sheet metal. It had no design aesthetics whatsoever. Sure. And, Helmut- well, and in their market, 
aesthetics were never a consideration. I mean, they were selling to large corporations to people who were paid to buy the product, but how it looked was immaterial. And to the IT department or whatever it was called back then, and they didn't really care if the product worked or how, how uh, not, I should say that, they didn't really care what it looked like and they didn't really right. care about the user experience so long as it was cheap. Yeah. And that's, correct me if I'm wrong, that's one of the reasons why Steve did not want to sell into the enterprise because their values in terms of what they were buying was not consistent with what Apple was trying to do at the time. Oh, right. I mean, the 1984 ad was all about tearing down the enterprise. Right. right. Were you involved in that uh, 1984 ad? No, I wasn't. But I remember uh, I was in uh, Paris at the time, and I came to the 1983 sales meeting in Hawaii. In Honolulu, yep. And Steve showed that ad. And I remember guys standing on tables screaming. It was such <laughs> a great ad. And then I remember the stories of guys on the board just Hanging their head. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and they almost killed the ad. Yeah, they yep. did. Yeah. But, uh, no, I didn't have anything to do with it. I think that was that was probably, uh, uh, who was the ad agency at the time? Shai Day. Shai and the, the writer was a fellow by name of Hayden. I think Phil Hayden. Steve Hayden? Steve Hayden, yeah. Yeah. And Steve went on to be vice president of, uh, I forget the name of the ad agency in New York, which became the largest ad agency in the world. Oh, really? Yeah. BBDNO, perhaps? Or? I think it was, that was one of them that got bought. Uh, I don't mm. remember what the name they, they, they ended up with it, but uh, he was writing copy for the Apple III, and he wrote that ad. It was absolutely brilliant. It was. It was great. So, no, I, I wish I could claim credit for any part of that. No, I can't. <laughs> Do you have any closing thoughts or lessons that uh, you've learned for product marketing managers? Well, I think one of the the things that Apple did that was unique and contributed to its success is that it made followers out of its customers. I mean, if you were an Apple customer, you, you weren't just a customer. You It was like a cult almost. It was a way of life. You thought different. You were proud of that <laughs> Apple that you wore on your shirt. So it's, it's kind of, Nike has done a good job of that right. with just do it. But most companies don't do a good job of that. Most people don't see the product as a statement of themselves. So I think what I've tried to do certainly in our company is find the core value of the product and express that in such a way that other people could say, yeah, that's me. That's a concise way of saying who I'd like to be. And I think Apple did that really well. Yes, I think so. And it continues today. And I noticed, uh, oh, maybe up to about four, five, six years ago, people would deride Apple by calling people that loved Apple products fanboys. Yeah. And I, I noticed they're not calling us fanboys, at least in the last couple of years, now that Apple is the, uh, the most valuable company in the world. Kind of worked, didn't it? Yes, finally did. <laughs> finally did. And I think, as I teach and, and write about, uh, a great firm foundation of that is Apple's values because we would go into a room and make a decision like going back to my story on uh, the Floyd Kwame question of what would I tell the dealer if we violate our values I would give the, Kwame's phone number to them let let him explain it why he sure. would violate the values and I also uh, write about and talk about the HP way which you copied Apple values off of uh, Apple grew 20% a year every year for 50 years 
until the mid of the late 90s, and Carly uh, Farina came in, blew up Apple Valley, uh, excuse me, the HP way, and the company's been struggling to find its way ever since. Yes. Yeah, I remember consulting for HP after she'd come aboard, and, you know, there was (laughs) chaos, no group trusted any other group there. They were working against each other. Yet when we were there, all groups trusted all the other groups because one of the HP way values is trust the other guy. Well, I remember when I was an engineer at HP, we had the the logo up on the the lab wall and it said, HP has to perform. So Hmm. you do whatever you have to do to make it work. Yep. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Phil. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to talk to you. On behalf of my guest and myself, thanks for joining us on Product Success Management Issues. I am Dave Frayton. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn.